0: Hello and welcome to episode 165 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story from the south of England again spans a number of years and it's a story of greed, violence, and a man's ruthless determination to take just what he wanted, regardless of what got in the way. If you haven't bought your ticket to see me and Mike from the Excellent Murder Mile podcast talk serial killers in London on the 30th of January, I'm afraid the show has sold out. But the good news is our friends at Fever have added another show on Wednesday, the 19th of February, again in London. Get your tickets today. Imagine just how devastated you would feel to miss out. No, no, really. <laughs> just head to uktruecrime.com and I look forward to seeing you there and for drinks afterwards. You're round. Whilst there, read the excellent recent article by Jenny about her new true crime podcast, It's Murder Up North. I'm delighted that this episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is making it even easier and more convenient to cook fresh in 2020. As you may know, I'm living in a holiday home until we move to our new house next month. So with limited cooking space and frankly ability, I love the delivery of fresh, quality pre-portioned ingredients to my door. With 21 different recipes to choose from each week, from family favourites and balanced recipes under 600 calories, to recipes that are on the table in 10 minutes flat, there's something for everyone to try. And to make meal times even more memorable, you can also add extras like desserts and artisan bread for extra convenience. This week I particularly loved the vegetarian sausage cassoulet, and next week I'm already looking forward to the Shimola Spiced Halloumi. Yummy! For the simple way to cook fresh, HelloFresh is offering you 50% off your first box and 35% off your next three boxes. Just head to hellofresh.co.uk and use the code CRIME to receive 50% off your first box and 35% off your next three. I'm delighted that this episode is sponsored by Skillshare. As someone whose day job is in HR, I can really appreciate Skillshare, an online learning community where millions come together to take the next step in their creative journey, with thousands of inspiring classes for creative and curious people like you, on topics such as design, illustration, video, photography, freelancing, there are so many more. I know that for all of us, January is a pretty tough month, but Skillshare is also really affordable especially when you compare it to those in-person classes and workshops which cost so much. An annual subscription is less than $10 a month. And there is something there for everyone to make you more creative. The last course I took was on taking professional photographs on my iPhone as I was sick of being such a rubbish photographer. It's a great course, loved it. Take it today. Skillshare is a proud sponsor of the UK True Crime Podcast. Explore your creativity at skillshare.com forward slash true crime and get two free months of premium membership. That's two whole months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. Get started and join today by heading to skillshare.com slash true crime. That's skillshare.com slash true crime. As always, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new supporters, Bridget Curtin, Ross Size 7 Sneddon and Paul Allen, who has increased his support. I really appreciate it and hope you enjoy the 30 plus bonus episodes, naked videos, and other exclusive content. Let's take a super quick look at the music we were listening to at the key date for today's story, the 15th of February 2003. Top of the chart was Tattoo with all the things she said, remember them? Keeping the trouser snake at 2. Crying Him a River. All I Have from Jennifer Lopez, featuring LL Cool J, topped the US charts. And the best-selling Australian album this year was Delta Goodrum with Innocent Eyes. In the news this month, Space Shuttle Columbia disintegrated during re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere, killing all seven astronauts aboard. During a great white concert in West Warwick, Rhode Island, a pyrotechnics display set the club ablaze killing 100 people and injuring over 300 others. The London Congestion Charge Scheme began this month and Dolly the Sheep, cloned in 1996, also died. We talk a lot on this podcast about perception versus reality, especially on social media, where people tend to show us the people they would really like to be. Few really believe it deep down, I think. In today's story, we look at someone who it appears really believed all those stories they told others. Born in 1953, Kenneth Regan was no Brad Pitt. In fact, he had a face and a physique that only a mother could love. But in the mid-1990s, he was making a lot of money via his criminal activities and we loved the nickname Captain Cash. He drove a new Mercedes with a boot full of cash and rather than try to woo a potential girlfriend as you or I might have done back then with a tin of quality street, he would present her with an expensive Cartier watch. He saw himself as an international criminal strategist, untouchable to the authorities and as a wealthy playboy. Like so many of us, he made the bulk of his money smuggling heroin. To give you an idea of the scale of his drugs ambition, in 1996 he was a key part of a gang Looking to import £40 million of cannabis into the UK using a submarine he got built especially for the job. The attempt wasn't successful, but it helps, I think, to illustrate the size of what he wanted to achieve. Regan realised that having a legitimate business to launder the huge amounts of cash was vital, so the second pillar of his business was money laundering and he used an insurance business based in a respectable part of London's Regent Street to launder millions of pounds of drugs money between 1996 and 1998. The third area of Regan's business was the fake passport business, where he produced staggering amounts of fake documentation, along with his accomplice, William Hornsey. Hornsey, much more of him later, had been an accountant, although not a very successful one. But he played a major part in this passport business, paying the homeless and others desperate for cash, up to £50 a time for their personal details, which could then be used to obtain passports. Regan was well known in the criminal underworld as the go-to man, and it is thought he supplied well over 10,000 criminals who needed a passport. It's staggering, isn't it? It was a huge lucrative business and the pair made upwards of £2 million. He operated with some very well-known criminals including, it is alleged, the notorious Adams crime family for whom, it was reported in the Guardian newspaper, he helped launder drugs money. And when Patsy Adams needed to leave the country on a fake passport, it is said that he turned to Reagan to deliver the goods. Regan was another who didn't expect to be caught until, that is, June 1998, when he realised he wasn't untouchable. The police were waiting in North London as Regan was involved in a heroin smuggling deal and he was caught with an incriminating 25 kilos of heroin and a load of cash in his car. Not one to go quietly, he drove into a policewoman, injuring her as he unsuccessfully tried to escape but he didn't get far and was soon in custody where he was charged with heroin smuggling and assaulting a police officer. Knowing that he was facing at least 20 years in the slammer, he saved his own skin and agreed to work with detectives as a supergrass. His information was key in securing a number of convictions, with the BBC website reporting he helped detectives in the following cases. 1. Operation Bromley Initially he was a defendant, but he turned Queen's evidence and helped secure the conviction of a gang involved in the importation of up to 40 kilos of heroin. 2. Operation Hoy Here Regan assisted the National Crime Squad. One of the people that Regan gave information about was his friend and partner in the passport business, Bill Hornsey. 3. Operation Extend Regan gave evidence for the prosecution at the committal stage of a cocaine trial. This led to the conviction of a number of major players involved in a 100 million pounds operation with a large sum of money seized. And four, Operation Parcienne. An ongoing investigation into the partially solved murder of a businessman who was gunned down in a street in central London in 1993. At the conclusion of Regan's trial, the judge spoke directly to him, saying, As a result of your cooperation, you will never again be trusted by your former colleagues, so you can't go back to a life of crime, and the enmity of these people will make your future life precarious. Those who turn against former associates should receive a very great reduction in their sentence. Regan was sentenced to eight years, but was released just three years later in 2002. Of course, there are inherent dangers in his strategy of informing on others. And the Guardian newspaper quoted a former fellow prisoner who said this about him. He knew there were contracts on his life, but he didn't seem to care. His attitude was, come on then, let's get it over with. There was no way he was going to live quiet. Believe me, when he goes, Regan will go out with a bang. So in June 2002, Regan was a free man. This lack of wealth didn't sit well with him, and he wasn't the sort of bloke to get a so called normal job. It was rumoured he did have money stashed offshore, but was unable to access it until 2004. Whether this is true or not, he knew that he needed to have another company to act as cover for his illicit activities, but he didn't have the cash to buy one. To you or me, this might be a problem, but not for Regan. His mindset was very clear. If he didn't have the cash, then he would just steal somebody else's company. Before we get on to how he did this, it's time to introduce Regan's friend, Belinda Bruin, to our story. Belinda had met Regan before he went to prison, and he was immediately infatuated with her. One of the late Paulie Yates' best friends, Belinda was someone he wanted a relationship with, even though she made it very clear she wasn't interested, and in character with Regan, This reality check didn't stop him, he just told everyone that the two were an item. They first met in Knightsbridge in central London where Belinda was enjoying drinks with a pal and they then bumped into each other on a number of occasions afterwards at Stamford Bridge. I think it's a football ground, I'm not too sure. Regan was nothing if not persistent and he kept asking Belinda to go to his home near Bournemouth for lunch and even invited her to watch the Grand Prix in Monaco for which he had said he had hired a helicopter. Regan continually boasted about his assets, financial assets that is, and he told Belinda that his wealth came from legitimate business interests as he owned a bonded warehouse. She still made it clear that she wasn't interested. I think the expression I read somewhere is that she wouldn't sleep with him, even if she were as drunk as a skunk. But he remained infatuated. He's even said to have had pictures of her in his home. During his time in the Slammer, Belinda didn't visit him, but Regan did send her a note of condolence when her friend Paulie Yates tragically died of a drugs overdose whilst he was inside. Regan did make contact again with her soon after his release from prison and they discussed a number of business proposals, such as how to change planning permission for a 10-acre plot of land in West London. Belinda was very well connected and happy to speak to some of her legal friends for advice on how to proceed. Regan spoke to her about this and other, on the surface, legitimate business propositions, although none ever came to fruition. Belinda now lived outside London on a 50-acre farm in Tiverton, Devon, and Regan knew her finances were a touch tighter than previously due to a mortgage and school fees for her children. So he offered Belinda a job at his company as managing director and credit controller for 4 a month for two days a week. Later he increased the offer to 72000 after saying she needed more. Belinda was astonished and later said, I couldn't quite believe it to be honest. I said, thank you very much. I was not qualified to do this job. I know what she means, don't you? In comparison, it even makes those freeloaders in the House of Lords sound like they work for a living. Well, sort of. The company in question where she had just joined the payroll was based in the Heathrow Airport and called Ciba Freight. But there was just one issue, quite a major one really, and that is that Regan didn't own the company. Ciba Freight was owned by Amajit Chohan, a man seemingly crushing it in the freight business with over £2 million in the bank and other assets. His company appeared to be thriving, employing over 20 people to import fruit and vegetables to the UK from Africa. It was also involved in the shipping of the narcotic cat into the country. You may know that cat, though legal in Britain, has mildly hallucinogenic properties and it's banned in some other countries including the US. Amagint, was a great guy, a really popular man, a charismatic, charming, hard working family man. But returning to our theme today of perception versus reality, not everything was quite as it seemed at Seba Freight. Amajit had previously been jailed for three years for tax evasion. Some who knew him in those days said that, although a highly charming man, he could be a tricky character to deal with, and it was suggested that he tried to overcharge customers at the company he owned at the time, Jumbo Freight Services. In the mid-1990s, he had found a lucrative way of boosting profits by fraudulently not paying tax on payments due on consignments from overseas. He was investigated, eventually charged and faced trial, where he was sentenced to three years in prison after being convicted of 13 charges of evading tax on his release he started his new business seba freight and built it into a company with a really healthy turnover but there were issues the guardian newspaper reports that a prominent asian businessman who had done significant business with amajit before his spell inside said that when amajit was in prison he had met a man close to the criminal underworld this man was regan on his release from jail Amajit surprised his friends by surrounding himself with a new group of men who treated him with great familiarity, calling him Neil and making themselves very busy at his new firm. His firm was doing exceptionally well, the business contact said, but he didn't want people to see that he had money. He was quietly buying up properties all over West London for cash. His main trade was importing vegetables from Kenya but there were rumours about drug smuggling and money laundering. Whether that is true or not is unclear, but Amajit did want to sell his company desperately, mainly due to his involvement in the cat trade. Importing cat was, as you can imagine, a high-pressure job, and there were regularly large numbers of potential cat buyers rocking up at his warehouse looking for a sample from the latest shipment he'd imported. These people weren't always easy to deal with and this led to a number of difficult situations. Amajit absolutely wanted out and his new pal Regan was someone with the contacts who might be able to make this happen. In his personal life it was all changed too. 46-year-old Amajit had been married to his wife for over 20 years. But they split after his release from prison and he moved in with his 22-year-old girlfriend Nancy. When we joined the story in February 2003, the couple had married the year before and had two sons together, Devinder who was 18 months old and Ravinda, who was just three months. Nancy, like most people, didn't like Regan at all. The Guardian reports another friend of Amajit who said of him, Why was he involved with a man like that? Regan's a thug. He crashed his lorry into a car driven by a friend of mine down at the yard one day. When my friend pointed out the damage, Regan fixed him with this terrifying stare. He said, You didn't see anything. Nothing happened here. My friend drove off. Fast. On the 13th of February, Amarjit told his business partner, Mike Parr, that Regan had set up a meeting with some Dutch businessmen who were potentially interested in buying Seba Freight. So saying he'd be back later, he left his office in Hounslow, West London, heading for the meeting, which was to be held near Stonehenge. But by late afternoon, he still wasn't back, and Nancy was getting concerned about her husband, and called Mike Parr to see if he'd heard from him. Mike checked in with Regan to see what was going down, and Regan sighed and was clearly agitated and annoyed that Amarjit's wife was chasing for her husband to get home he told mike tell her to stop fussing he'll be all right later that evening when there was still no sign of amajit and nancy couldn't get a hold of him on his mobile mike popped over to amajit and nancy's home which was in hounslow close to the business when he was there regan turned up too saying he had a message from amajit on his mobile mike relayed what happened next in his own words he played the message It was along the lines of, don't panic, I'll be home tomorrow. He sounded okay, quite chirpy. Nancy calmed right down. You could see the relief in her face. Nancy was under a lot of pressure at home, having only recently given birth to her second child. And the family were receiving some additional support from her mum, Charon Jot Carr, who was staying with them for a while to help out. But when Nancy still hadn't heard from her husband the next day, she was seriously concerned. This wasn't how Amarjit behaved at all. She called her brother Onka in New Zealand the next day, the 14th of February. She was panicky and frantic that his mobile phone was switched off, which was most unlike him. And when she called Sebra Freight, she was now told he had flown to the Netherlands to meet the potential buyers of the company. Again, this was totally out of character. They had a very close relationship and he would have told her if this was the plan. And then she told her brother about the message on Regan's phone, saying that he would be home soon. This too made no sense to Nancy, as the message was in English, and Amarjit always left messages in Punjabi. But even more concerning was the trip to the Netherlands, which Nancy knew couldn't have happened, as her husband didn't have a passport. It was with the UK government, As he'd recently applied for a residency permit. So, how could he possibly have flown to Holland for a meeting with no passport? It wasn't possible. So, if he wasn't in the Netherlands, as she was being told, just where was he? Of course, what Nancy could never have known was that her husband was at that very moment being held captive by Regan at Regan's dad's house near Salisbury in Wiltshire. He was being drugged, tortured and made to sign documents handing over control of Ciba Freight to Regan. Regan had brought two of his pals to join him in the plot, 53-year-old Bill Haunsey, who had worked with him on the passport fraud, and 39-year-old Peter Rees. Regan had planned the whole plot methodically, and in the days leading up to the bogus meeting with the Dutch businessman, Regan had been calmly buying the gear he needed to make his plan come to fruition the drug GHB to disable Amagit and rolls of brown tape from Amajit's own warehouse so that after he was murdered, his body could be mummified. We probably don't want to know the full horror of what Amajit went through as he was forced to record messages telling his family not to worry and write letters making it clear he had chosen to disappear for his own reasons. There were 23 blank pieces of paper that he was forced to sign which the trio believed they would need to be able to take control of his business. As we've heard already, on the first day that Amarjit disappeared, Regan initially played the role of a concerned friend to Nancy, going round the house and reassuring her that her husband was okay. But that didn't last. And next week, in the second and concluding part of our story, we will hear the shocking details of what happened next. You really don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head over to the Facebook group where there are now almost 6,000 of us. And to support the show, why not join me on Patreon for over 30 bonus episodes and other exclusive content. You know it makes sense. Pop over to Patreon now. That's patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. So that is all for me for this week, so until we speak in next week, thanks again for listening. Get to UKTrueCrime.com for your tickets for the live show and grab your deals at Skillshare and HelloFresh. Ah, by the way, you can't eat your HelloFresh at the sauna, just in case you were thinking about it. I guess almost two weeks or so into 2020, it's time to start rewriting the New Year's resolutions. I mean, really? Did you think you were going to stick to them? Anyway, on that note, I'm off to find something else to do to replace my previously booked party to celebrate promotion for the Mighty Leeds United. Maybe bowling in Peterborough. And on that bombshell, thanks again for listening. I'll speak with you again next week. Cheerio.